0: Before the conversation begins, steal your resolve to fight through the awkwardness. That resistance you feel is not coming from God, it's coming from the other powers bent on preventing you from talking with your child about religious matters. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Every Knee Shall Bow, your weekly Catholic podcast on evangelization. My name is Mike Gomer-Gorma, and I'm not joined by Dave the Body Van Vickle. We are going to keep going with our series, so every week on Tuesday nights, I teach a class for my adults from Brandon Bott's wonderful book from Word on Fire, Return, How to Draw Your Child Back to Church. I want to thank our fine folks over at Ascension for being such amazing and supportive partners here in this quest to make the church more evangelistic. Brainevot actually lays out literal conversation starters. So we're going to go through this together. Um, and so I, I love this line that he has, uh, "We want to create an atmosphere of friendly curiosity and relaxed diplomacy." That describes my marriage. We uh, <laughs> only begin after prayer and fasting for several months, and the person is in a place of trust. That's our goal. You want them to be in a place of trust, and you want to be praying and fasting for them. So if you're doing that, Right. Tomorrow is Wednesday. It was fun editing last week's talk, and I hear all your groanings when I talked about fasting. Right. So tomorrow you're gonna this is what you're gonna do. You're gonna wake up. You're gonna get your cup of coffee, cup of tea, whatever. You're gonna drink it. You're gonna say that was awesome. Goodbye, pleasures. And then you're gonna fast. Right. And when you fast, every time you walk by the carb bar or the the brownies that someone donated, you're gonna say, Oh, oh, oh ah, ah, not today, Satan. I'm offering this up for the conversion of so-and-so, or I'm offering this up for the grace to overwhelm the heart of so-and-so, right? That's what we want to do. You take a little annoyances and you offer them up. You know why? Because there's a lot of a little annoyances, right? There's a lot of a little annoyances. Okay, so what we're gonna do is we want to frame how we're gonna have these conversations. We wanna build the atmosphere correctly, a relaxed diplomacy, so this is... I mean, I really do agree with this advice. This advice has worked for me. Uh, When I'm doing prison ministry my first year, and I'm gonna use some of those stories, but also with my own family members when I'm on an airplane with strangers. It's a lot of fun sitting next to me. Number one, don't start with a religious topic. Okay, now maybe you have an adult child or a brother or sister or parent or whatever, and they're coming over to your house. Maybe it's Thanksgiving, maybe it's Christmas, maybe it's a birthday, whatever it might be. You don't know, you're not always with them, so you think, aha. I have them. We're here, kind of like me with people on an airplane. I got you trapped, right? But what you wanna do is you wanna have the attitude of, okay, I'm not here to pummel them. I'm here to love them. Full stop, end of sentence, regardless of whether or not they convert, regardless of whether or not we have a religious conversation. But I've been fasting for this person. I've been getting my friends to fast for this person. I've been praying for this person. So now we're just gonna see. So then you begin a conversation. At some point in the conversation, when it feels opportune, take a risk and ask a straight question. Now, have any of you done this? Have any of you just been like, okay, you're not tiptoeing around the conversation, but at one point you're like, you know, maybe I should say something. Maybe I should be a little bit bold. Have you ever done that? This is part of living out our Catholic faith with someone is oftentimes, for them, there's this elephant in the room that you're not addressing, right? So sometimes it's actually a relief to bring up, so what is your faith like nowadays? Right, So where do you see yourself in relationship to God? Right, So we're gonna go through that. Brenavot says, but once you've spent enough time on the preceding task, you prayed, fasted, you made small sacrifices, you've equipped yourself because you're reading your Bible and your catechism, you planted seeds, your child is likely ready. But before the conversation begins, steal your resolve to fight through the awkwardness. That resistance you feel is not coming from God, it's coming from the other powers bent on preventing you from talking with your child about religious matters. Those powers want nothing more than your silence. So take heart and push through. Now this doesn't mean be a bully, and we're gonna kinda go through how do you distinguish between the two. But the idea is, you're having a conversation with someone that you love, like we'll just say for the sake of this, so I'm not referencing every single group possible, that it's your child. You're talking with your son or your daughter, and you say, you know what, I I do wonder, What are your views towards Christ or the church or God, right? Then what we need to do is let that awkwardness hang. It's okay for it to be awkward. The devil wants the awkwardness because that's where we cringe and we pivot and then we go serve from another slice of cake and go about our business. But just hang there. When they begin to speak, this is where point number two comes in. Listen first, then listen some more. I love this quote. Uh, Theologian Francis Schaeffer was once asked what he would do If he had an hour with a non Christian, he replied by saying that he would listen for 55 minutes. Then, in those last five minutes, he would have something to say. Now, nerds like me can sometimes study this stuff so much. That we can already anticipate the next four or five objections and statements that are coming out of their mouth. I've literally, in one conversation, I said, oh, I bet you they're going to say this. I bet you they're going to say And then they said it, and I was like, I knew you would say that. And then when I said that part out loud, how do you think the other person felt? Right? Like, And here we go. Okay, that, you chose paragraph 1A7B. Now I'm going to respond with canned response. Right, so... <laughs> Listen and then listen some more. Jesus Christ asked more questions and he gave more answers where people were coming at him. It is always good to ask questions. Always good. And then when you're done asking questions, ask a couple more. When I opened my mouth mm-hmm. to say something about that, mom, I don't want to get it. <laughs> I do yeah. not want to talk about it. It's yeah. like, do you get it? Yeah. <laughs> you know? She's coming at you with the shutdown. Absolutely. Right, right, and then that's where you say, "Okay, okay, great." You know, maybe some other time we can talk about it, but you know, or you could just simply say, "Why do you think he's just?" A, what about what he said makes it sound like he's just a teacher? No, done. <laughs> yeah, then, then this is the good thing. Then this is the 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 clarity that you're given in those situations. Sometimes there are walls around people's heart for certain people by certain people, right? And that's when you begin praying for another Ambrose or an Andrew, right? You begin praying, okay, she's tuning me out. She's doing this. She's knife handing me right now. So Lord, open her heart because then this means that she needs that position of trust. She hasn't built that. And it's not with you. It's with the church or with God or faith in general or Christianity in general. So then that idea of building that bridge of trust, you may have to just say, okay, Okay, I'm not I'm not I don't want to push you away. I love you. Oftentimes in stuff like that, pulling back and completely away from the conversation is not denying or ditching your faith. You must shower them with love, unconditional love, right? And then just say, "Okay, God, they uh, they're not picking up what I'm putting down, so I'm going to just shower them with love and we'll we'll move on to something else." And see, that's not bad. I think sometimes we feel guilty that we're not the ones driving the Uh, battering ram through the gates of resistance but don't worry about that because Jesus says love your neighbor as yourself right so if we can actually manifest that unconditional love that God has for us in Christ Jesus I think that will do more to soften their hearts because right now she doesn't have a soft heart (laughs) Right now she's got a knife and heart, right? So what we wanna do is try to come at her not with arguments because she's already on the defensive before you even say anything. So you wanna tear down those walls with love. Listening to your child can have at least three advantages. One, you immediately come across as agreeable. This can disarm your child and make it easier for you uh, to persuade him later on. Second, you get to hear your child's actual feelings and doubts, which may be far different than what you guessed. I'll never forget talking with this one individual who I was told, you know, just hardcore atheist, hardcore atheist. And they're like, well, of course I believe in God. And you're like, uh, what? No, that is the exact opposite of what everyone told me about you, right? So asking questions and then listening and then asking more questions they begin to vocalize actually what they think. And third, you give your child a chance to vocalize and clarify why he or she has drifted away from the church. Child, you know, nephew, whatever. And it's important that they clarify this because here's the funny thing. If the majority of people have just drifted away, they don't have a clear reason. They don't have a clear, many don't have a clear reason as to why they are no longer active in the church. They have some half-hearted reasons that have kind of congealed together to produce in their mind, yeah, you know, of course, how, how can God exist? It's absurd. You know, maybe they have people that they follow and respect in the scientific community and they come out as atheists and it's kind of this group thing, push, or whatever it might be that pulls them out, but it might not be an argument or a reason. And so by asking them questions, you get them to state. You get them to state and to kind of clarify, because I have seen this more than probably anything else, is as you ask them questions, they begin to understand what they think for the fir- maybe for the first time in their lives about the big questions. Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? Does God exist? So here are some questions that my buddy Marcel Lejeune came up with. He runs uh, Catholic Missionary Disciples website, that's what it's called. Um, he used to run uh, the ministry over at uh, St. Mary's and College Station, the Catholic center there. Tell me about, so here's just a list of questions. Tell me about what kind of role faith played while growing up, if any. How would you describe your idea of Catholicism or Christianity? What personality traits are most attractive? How do you handle the rough parts of life? See, these are not just explicitly religious questions. Right, you're asking them to see what hope Christ gives you. How do you deal with suffering? How do you deal with the rough parts of life? What are you most passionate about? What brings meaning to your life? What makes you happy? Would you like to continue our conversation? <laughs> you always want to pepper that in. <laughs> Press A for more options. <laughs> Do you pray? If so, would you mind describing it for me? If not, have you ever prayed in the past? I remember one time I was sitting next to a guy who I think might have been high, now that I like think back on it. Uh, and he talked very aggressively with his hands on the back of a Southwest Airlines flight. And he was just talking to me, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so as he's talking, I just kept asking him questions. Well, you know, he's like, oh, you're a religious dude. And I'm like, well, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a re- I'm religious dude, but like I'm a layperson, I have a family, you know, I'm not like, I'm not a priest or something. Whoa, okay, I thought you had to be a priest. Oh, whoa, whoa. And then we just began asking questions. And then at the end of the flight, when the plane landed, it was, oh, it was a short flight. I think it might've been the Dallas hop, you know? And he said, uh, what did he say? He's like, wow, you're, you're like the smartest Christian I've ever talked to. And I lead in and I go, you need to talk to more Christians then. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, so you go through this stuff. Is God someone you would say you have a personal relationship with? Have you ever had a kind of moment where you felt particularly close to Jesus? Uh, once he's completely finished, then it's time for an important task. Repeat his thoughts back to him in your own words. Now, why is that important? Because you're not trying to manipulate, you're trying to understand. So what you're saying is... If I heard you right, you said dot, dot, dot. What you want to do is state it in your own words so that you understand where they're coming from, right? St. Francis, the, the prayer of St. Francis, right? Let me not so much seek to be understood as to... That's the key to loving our neighbor as ourself, right? I want to understand you. I want to give to you. I want to love you, right? This is not a results-based relationship. This is not a I only love you if, Okay. The five most powerful questions you can ask. It's kind of a a hyperbolic title, but I like it. This comes, it's on the back of that first page there. Uh, These questions come from Trent Horn. If you know him, he's the apologist, chief apologist for Catholic Answers. He's got a great website uh, and podcast called the Council of Trent. Um, He does a lot of Catholic Answers stuff. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, But he's a great guy, and I love listening to him. He started, he came into my kind of purview um, when I was in grad school doing stuff on pro-life work and he has um, persuasive pro-life arguments or a book, something like that. And uh, just really excellent, excellent approaches to the pro-life issue for people who, in conversation with people who are adamantly anti-life, right? And so that's where that kind of comes from. Uh, I love this, the, the, this one evangelist that Brandon Bott draws from Gregory Colt or something like that, Coquel? Uh, Calls this the Columbo tactic. And do you guys watch Columbo? I love Columbo. I love Columbo. Oh man, my mom would watch him all the time. Go on the offensive in an inoffensive way by using carefully selected questions to productively advance the conversation, right? You should never make a statement, at least at first, when a question will do the job, right? So here are five questions. What do you believe about, what do you believe about aliens, right? That's a good question. Non-threatening, but gets outside of uh, well our solar system. What do you? Why do you think that's true? That's a fascinating question. Why do you think that's true? Oh, look at all these anti-science people. Why do you? Why do you think they're anti-science? Why would you say that? Why do you think that's true? Right. You put that out there. Well, obviously, I love that. That was my brother. My brother in high school was the king of. Oh, it's obvious. Right. Do you ever have that one? Right. Oh. Duh, well, I mean, like, like they're one syllable away from just saying "duh," right? <laughs> which means, which means, they have no argument, right? When someone gets to immediately that name calling, that's where asking questions is awesome because it reveals to them, like, "Oh snap! I really have no idea. I really have no idea. I'm, I'm asserting. You caught me in my sheer assertion, so I'm going to double down and maybe throw in an insult just to get it across the the, the end zone." Uh, how did you come to believe that? That's a great question because it unveils the process. How, how'd you come to believe that? What, what led you to that conclusion? Where'd you come up with that? Not, and not in like a condescending, like, where'd you come up with that, right? But like, you're wondering, because what happens is a lot of us have conclusions that we haven't really heard the argument for, right? And so what we want to do is to be able to help them clarify why they came to that process, because half the time, It just lives in this mush of non-logical reality. They don't have reasoned arguments. They have assertions. What do you mean by? Now, this this makes my, you know, philosophy 101 heart go pitter-patter, right? Because that's what you learn in philosophy 101. Socrates, you always start off by defining your terms. And Brandon Vaught in the book has this wonderful thing where he goes through... um, N.T. Wright, who's an Anglican bishop and theologian, brilliant scripture scholar and theologian. I love the guy. He's probably made more Catholics than most, most Catholics. Uh, and when you hear him, he, is, he has such a, a, a way with the English language. I love it. And he's so down to earth. But he used to be the chaplain at Oxford. And he would go door to door in dorms and just knock on the door and say, hey, I'm the chaplain, and I just want you to have a face, and I want to invite you to you know, uh, mass on Sunday. And they would look at him and be like, well, I I don't believe in God. You're not going to see me too much, chaplain. I don't believe in God. And then he would say, well, what do you mean by God? And they'd be like, oh, some, you know, uh, some gray bearded man up in the sky who watches everything we do and punishes us or whatever. And he goes, yeah, I don't believe in that God either. And I can see why you wouldn't, right? I'm like, what do you mean you don't believe in that God? Oh, is this an atheist chaplain? Which at Oxford is not unheard of. And... uh, (laughs) and he would say, oh no, I believe in the God revealed to me by Jesus of Nazareth. I don't believe in this spy in the sky. Like, what are you talking about? That's not the God of the Bible. What, right? See, when we define our terms, I mean, the most prominent atheist right now from the new atheist movement is a guy named Richard Dawkins. He's an evolutionary biologist, blah, blah, blah. I think he's at Oxford Oxford or Cambridge. Um, You know, he's very well respected in his scientific sphere, but he's famous for all his shenanigans, crappy atheist books that, are just terrible when it comes to logical argument. But one of the things uh, that he would say is, you know, I don't believe in God, this flying spaghetti monster in the sky. That's about as real. He would say, like, the belief in God is about as real as belief in a flying spaghetti monster, which kills me. It kills me because it's such an irrational argument because it doesn't take what we mean by God seriously, right? When, it, when they say that, they don't mean God, as in Christianity or Judeo Christianity. They mean Zeus. Right, they mean this being that's the most powerful being in the world or in the universe. The universe is nothing; it's a pinprick to God. Right, the whole universe, all possible universes, are finite things when compared to the infinite Creator. Right, they're dust; they don't compare. And so, for someone to equate God as the most powerful being, I just imagine like Thor in the Avengers. Right, like oh, he's really powerful; he flies; he can hit you. Right, like, and that's it. And we're like, no, that's not the good. We believe in a purely spiritual, non-physical, right, utterly simple, eternal, infinite creator God of the universe who has all the power, not just a lot of power or very powerful, but he's uh, omnipotent. He has all power to cross that infinite void from nothingness into something and created everything, right, sheerly through his will, right, through a sheer act of his will. So when you say, well, oh, you, know, you don't believe in Zeus, and Jupiter, and, and you know, the Hindu gods, well, I just believe in one less God than you Christians, I would say, you, you don't know what we mean when we say God. And I have found that dealing with, especially high school students, that's the most common, poorly defined term, right? What do you mean when you say God, describe him to me? Yeah, I wouldn't believe in that guy either. Because just because we use the word God doesn't mean we're talking about the same thing, okay? Number five, what would you say to someone who says, now I have never used this tactic ever, ever, ever. And reading the book, I don't, it feels too artificial for me, but this is why they put this in there. The idea is sometimes when you're talking to someone whose butt you've wiped or whatever, Uh, and that's, you know, your personal business. Uh, When you're engaging in a conversation with someone that you were intimately familiar with, right, oftentimes what what ends up happening is they get defensive just because of who you are and who they are, like your relationship. They're already defensive, I heard all before. So then what you do is you come up with this thing where you invent a third party. Like what would you say to someone who said, well, I think what you're saying is, is ridiculous. Clearly there's, a, you know, clearly there's a God, or clearly Jesus had to start a religion, or you know, cl- clearly Jesus had to start a church, or else it would all be anarchy. Right? What would you say to that person? Right? The idea is put some distance, one layer, one degree of separation between you and them, and have them debate an imaginary interlocutor. Right? Like, you just go off with this person over here. I have never used that. But I could see where, especially if tensions are high right at the get-go, right, when they're getting all knife-handy, right, maybe be like, well, what would you say to someone who says dot, dot, dot? Now, have any of you ever used that tactic or used that approach? I have never. I mean, I know most of us, we just, when we talk, we just have conversations and they just kind of go where they go. But I'm going to caution you against that because when we, oftentimes the most crucial conversations are filled with the most intense emotion which makes us say things that we haven't really thought out and maybe things that we totally regret later. So the most crucial conversations should be led with the most careful considerations before we have them, right? So what am I going to say when they start yelling? How am I going to de-escalate bring the thing down? Maybe it's I just go, "Okay, okay, whoa 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 whoa, let's go get a beer." And let's just, let's just talk about the wonderful hit NBC sitcom community, okay? <laughs> Six seasons and a movie. Okay, uh, identify the big roadblocks. Once you begin listening to your child's responses, the next step is to diagnose what's holding you back from the church. One effective way I've found is to just ask directly, what's the biggest thing keeping you away from the church? Uh, I have used this many a time. I've used this many a time. Whoa, what problem do you have? Or the second one I like even more. The second one I use with middle schoolers and high schoolers. Right, So I'm sitting down with a middle schooler, super, super uh, angsty, and you say, well, what bugs you the most about coming to church? What bugs you the most about Jesus? What bugs you the most about the church of teaching? Nine times out of 10, they want, nothing bugs them about Jesus, right? It's usually church stuff. People, generally speaking, are pretty cool with Jesus. It's the church and people like me that they got the problems with, right? Yeah. So what's one thing that bugs you about? Them? Oh, they're all hypocrites, Right, yeah, I love that one, I love that one. Really, what, what's a hypocrite? Someone who says one thing and does another. Okay, and hypocrites only exist in the church. Well, no, so the church is full of hypocrites, yeah. Okay, well, what does Jesus say about hypocrites? Does Jesus ever confront the problem of hypocrites? Here's Jesus attacking people for being religious hypocrites. You sound a lot like Jesus, did you know that? And then watch their blood rush from their face. <laughs> And here's an important one, especially during the age of these horrific sex abuse scandals. And I feel like every time I turn on the news, I turn off the news because there's another one coming down. What's happening in Canada now? Oh, dear God, they did what, right? Absorb the criticisms. Finally, in this initial phase of listening, you should be ready to absorb any frustrations your child has with the church, right? Sometimes a well-placed, I'm sorry that happened. You're absolutely right. It's disgusting. It's stupid. It's awful. Uh, One of the things that we did when the sex abuse scandal with Cardinal McCarrick all came out is we had that town hall. And they walked up to me a day before, and they said, will you give a 10-minute talk on how we ended up here? And I was like, ha, oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> there are so many ways I could go with that conversation, right, but the thing that people have to hear when you're having that conversation is that you, as a religious person, as a devout Roman Catholic, are 10 times more upset than they are, right? They need to hear that. They need to see that. So if you actually, the, the was any of you at the town hall that I did, that we did, right, the big town hall? Okay, so it was also on video. That video was watched in the first month like 65,000 times, right? Yeah, and it was crazy. And everyone that was one of my podcast listeners that, would write to me about the video, they all said, so you stood there for 12 minutes holding an open Bible, yet never once looked at it, because I had the Bible open to Hosea chapter 4, and Hosea chapter 4 is, you know, why, are, why is the land in anguish, why are the birds of the air dying and the fishes, why is the land polluted, why is everything messed up, why is everything terrible, let no one contend, let no one protest, my problem is with you, O oh priest, Right? And it just, it's just God through the prophet Hosea going after pathetic priests. And I was gonna open with that. And then I just started talking and forgot I was, I was so nervous. I forgot I was even holding the Bible. So I'm like walking around the whole time with this Bible in my hand like an idiot. Um, But the reality is, no one who sat down and talked with the lay people who work for the church, not a single one of them, could be outmatched in our rage, anger, disgust, sadness. I, I, I posted this picture of Ronald McDonald, the statue of Ronald McDonald, and behind it they had the uh, crew had demoed a McDonald's restaurant, and he it was a statue, right, sitting on a bench like this. You go take your picture, you know. And I said, this is how I feel. Like here I am putting on a great thing, come everyone. And the bishops are bulldozing the church now right behind us and the, the priests are all, you know." and so that was my rage. In fact, this one guy listening in Australia walked in with my like epic tirade against all of this stuff and he just walked up to his bishop And he just said, uh, and he was crying and he was angry. And he said, I just want you to listen to this in my presence, this is how I feel. And it was me and my buddy Luke just ripping in to this whole situation. And the bishop just sat there and after the rant was over, he's like, I feel that way too, I do. Like, I'm so furious that this happened. The problem is we need to be able to absorb that. Not to give cover, Right, Some people, their frustration might be I wasn't welcomed at church, or no one ever taught me the faith, or whatever it might be. It might not be the sex abuse scandals. But this is our place, right? We are members of the body of Christ, and individually, St. Paul says, members of one another. Individually, we are members of one another in Christ Jesus. So the next step is to move the dialogue forward. So here's the opening, right? You're going to be praying for them for months, you're going to be looking for an opening. You're going to be showering them with love. You're going to be sowing seeds, right? Putting fancy books around. Oh, what is this? Oh, did you get a new painting? What is that? The That's the divine mercy. You see the white rays represent grace. The red represents the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Where are you going, dear? Right? So <laughs> so now after you've begun the conversation, how do you move it forward? If anyone in the discussion gets angry, you lose. That's that same evangelist, uh, Gregory Kalkal, I don't know how to say his name. Uh, if anyone get, in the discussion gets angry, you lose. When you get angry, you come across as a bully whose ideas are not as good as you thought they were. <clears throat> You'll seem belligerent and unpersuasive, meaning their ideas, ugh, ugh, right? No one wants this, do you want this? Right, Shelly, imagine you came into my office and just went ugh, ugh, right? No one wants that. No one wants that verbally either. No one wants that in a conversation either. So what you need to do is stay humble. You know that phrase there, before the grace of God go I? You know where that statement comes from? Right here, 16th century um, Protestant preacher, John Bradford watched as criminals were led to their execution saying, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. So he would look at a criminal walking up and get ready, get ready to get hung, and he would say that. If it wasn't for the grace of God, I would be right there. So I need to stay humble. His point was that were it not for God's providential care, he could have easily been in their position, try to have a similar attitude. You know who's a master at this is Protestant pastor Andy Stanley. A lot of Protestant uh, non-denominational churches, one of the reasons why they pull a lot of people, especially from the Catholic Church, is that their Sundays are not meant for Insiders. Their Sundays are meant for outsiders, which is the exact opposite of the Catholic Church. So what they wanna do is draw on Sundays, draw seekers. This is called the Seeker Sensitive Movement, which is birthed from this thing called the Church Growth Movement. So what he does is he says things like, "You know, I know a lot of you have questions about whether or not Jesus is real, and maybe you were what the Bible says, the Bible says to death growing up. Well, I just want you to know that I probably wouldn't believe in God either if I were sitting in your shoes. And I just want you to know that's okay. You know, and sometimes he'll pull out a quote um, from Matthew 28, I think it's verse 11, where it's the ascension, and it said, they worshipped him, the apostles, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And he's like, even then, after the resurrection, they're still trying to figure this stuff out. Now, after Pentecost, a little bit different, but the idea is, you know, faith is a journey. Some people have different starting points than other people. St. Augustine was adamantly opposed to the Christian faith, the Catholic Church, until he became its greatest theologian. Maybe your kid or cousin or nephew or parent is going to be the greatest theologian in the history of the church. Who knows? Good question. Yeah. So what is is the, I don't know anything about Joel Osteen, but what is his big, in your opinion, his big draw for the huge crowd? Uh, So Joel Osteen's biggest appeal is he belongs to a movement called the Health and Wealth Gospel. And he can somewhat try to deny those charges, but have you ever listened to a whole sermon from beginning to end of Joel Osteen? So Father Tom loves listening to Joel Osteen when he needs a, a pick-me-up, and I bought Father Tom's car, and it came with Sirius XM radio, and the only two stations were programmed Joel, no, three stations, Comedy, Joel Osteen, and the Catholic Channel. So one day I'm driving, and my phone won't connect to the stupid thing the usb port so i listened to the Catholic channel i'm like oh i've already heard this so i hit the button and it's joel osteen and he's like if you want to soar as high as an eagle you gotta stop hanging out with turkeys or you gotta right it's all the imagine your best life now god wants you to be rich and happy and successful right you don't need to convert in order to believe in that right you don't need to take up your never once does he say if you wanna follow Jesus, brothers and sisters, deny yourself every day. Take up your cross. You know what a cross is? It's an object of torture and ridicule and oppression. Pick that up and go follow. No, what he says is God wants you to live your best life. Or it's what got Oral Roberts Oral Roberts University. It's called the Health and Wealth Gospel. You give God one, he'll give you back 10. You give God 10, he'll give you back 100. Uh, Andy Stanley hates those kind of preachers and he'll say, uh, I wonder if they ever, if they really believed in that, why wouldn't they just give themselves a thousand and get back 10,000 and then give themselves a 10,000 and get back a million, you know, like, he's like, come on, come on. Peter Popoff was the famous scandal. Peter Popoff, a couple others, where they would have like his wife would be there and be like, Oh, you're cancer. And then she would radio to her husband. There's a woman named Sharon who has cancer in the front row. I feel like there's someone over here who has cancer. I think her name is Sharon. And she's like, Oh, I got it to me. Be. You're being healed. And then she would go and give 10 grand to the Peter Popoff ministry and go home and die of cancer, right? He made a, I mean, a mint off of stuff like that. So for, for Joel Osteen, I mean, you can follow the line from his dad. He was a camera operator when his daddy was a preacher and just draw the straight line to the Toyota Center. So, he's very encouraging. It's one thing but, that I do think. But it's false hope. Right, it, 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 it very much is. It's very much what? False hope. It's false, it's, I mean, it's, it's wild promises believing that God's gonna grant you your best life now. Name, mm-hmm. Yeah, Name it and claim it, word of faith movement. I, so we had someone who very much followed along those lines. And they refused to get married in the Catholic Church because they thought they were speaking curses and claiming it for themselves. I was like, what are you talking about? Sickness and in health, richer for poor? No, I say I want to be rich. I want to be healthy. That's what I claim. I'm not claim. and I'm like, what in the, this means if, if you get sick, she's not going to ditch you. And he, No, 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 I'm not going to claim it. I don't want that in my life. And I'm like, oh what voodoo do you believe in? But that's, Pentecostalism did not, there is a lot of non-Christian elements to Pentecostalism from the 1890s, right? You gotta remember from the 1890s to the 1920s, you're talking the launch of like Mormonism and Seventh-day Adventists and Christian scientists, and like all these things, not exactly that time, but around those times, started being produced, and they all kind of had a similar thing. Now is the time for a new revelation, a new thing. You know, St. Paul very clearly in Galatians chapter one, which is over the altar across the street from the Mormon temple in Salt Lake City, the Catholic Cathedral. If we, or if even an angel from heaven should preach to you a different gospel than the one you've heard from us, let them be anathema, let them be accursed. I say it again, let them be accursed. And that's on the side altar. across the street from the Mormon temple, which is the angel Mormoni supposedly revealed, you know, another testament of Jesus Christ. So what we have to do in order to keep the dialogue going forward, let me go back to the, the back to the thing, because my ADHD is... Bouncing around like crazy. Stay humble. Use open body language. Have you ever had a middle schooler roll their eyes at you? Uh My daughter did that to me today. How did that work out? Oh, out? Not good for her, but even worse for me. <laughs> no, like, I'll never forget, I, I was helping back when I was a youth minister in 2000, I think it was 2007. We had this wonderful girl, she played on the soccer team of the Woodlands, starting, you know, she, she's all the things, right? She's beautiful, she's hilarious, she's blah, 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 and she was on fire. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to send you over there to that table of freshmen. I just want you to welcome them. It was a social, we're all in the fellowship hall, kids are just eating food. And I said, just go up and introduce yourself. And just say, hey, you know, I'm a senior here. Just want to welcome you guys and you're freshmen, blah, blah, blah. So I turn around and I come back and I turn like five, eight seconds later. And she's standing by me and she's crying. (laughs) And I go, what happened? And she goes... They made fun of me. And when I found out she's like walks over and is like, hi, and they're like, get out of here. And they just rolled their eyes at her. And she was like, I have no idea freshmen rolling their eyes could crush my self-esteem. And I was like, wait till a seventh grader does it. You're like, who do you think you Or, you know, you wipe the tears from your eyes. Um, So when we talk about this stuff with conversations with people, your body language matters. It matters greatly, right? And if you find that you get angry often, sit down, drink a beer, and uh, literally put your hands open underneath the table so you don't look like a lunatic. But put your hands open and palms up. Like, that literally, uh, you know, I, I don't get the serotonin system, but it literally takes the edge off conversations, If you're just, okay, I'm open. I'm not going to be a jerk. You're doing this. You're feeding the anger, right? You're feeding the anger, right? It's, oh, I hate it when you said, you said that. Oh, right, you just, okay. So be conscious of your facial expressions. My wife cannot control for the life of her, her face, when we are at my mom's house. (laughs) Hi, Terry. Yeah, <laughs> I'll edit this part out. But, uh, but I mean, like, think about this. The kid, your, let's say your kid just says something that they really believe, and you'd go, really? Like, I mean, just just the, even if you don't mean to, it undercuts them, right? Express empathy as your child shares thoughts, respond in ways that you're not only, show that you're not only listening, but you also feel some of what he or she is feeling. You often Uh, You might offer replies such as, well, that makes a lot of sense. I think of Andy Stanley who says, yeah, if I had been through that, I'd I'd, I'd probably be even more of an atheist or whatever. That must be confusing, or I can imagine how frustrated that must have made you. This is not just a restatement of his words, but goes a step further and shows that you grasp the impact his thoughts and feelings have on him, right? So you're saying like, look, you're not just saying, I get it in some condescending way. Oh, no, no, I totally get it. I totally get it. No, you don't, Right? You're trying to identify very specific. Wow, that must have been really frustrating. That's things, right? Because they need to see their words. I like the way he phrased that have impact. Okay. All right, any questions about this so far? I'm telling you, this sounds so stupid that I'm teaching you how to talk, right? You know how to talk, blah, blah, blah. But here's the problem the emotions outpace our abilities. So we want our skills and abilities, our skill set to outpace the emotions. So we already know, like you two were in sales, right? Procter game, Yeah, so when you're in sales, right, you are given things to say, right? <laughs> I love the uh, Chris Farley line, never take, uh, never take no, never take no crap. Never take no for no. Never take no for an answer, man. Right? So you know, like, if someone says, "Hey, I'm in your neighborhood. I'm offering you this product. Would you like a sample?" Ah, uh, no, thanks. I'm not interested. Oh, okay. So you don't want to save up to thirty percent on right? You already have those replies. What happens if you don't have those? What do you mean no? I'm got You know, like. The emotions outpaces skill set. So when the skill set outpaces the emotions, the emotions can be much more appropriately channeled to saying, yeah, I know how that would frustrate someone. I get it. Thank you for sharing that, right? Restate your child's thoughts. I love this. He says, I know I already said it in the previous chapter. I'm saying it again now because it's so important because here's the deal. Whenever I, I, so I had to send out an angry email uh, today to a volunteer who's doing something wrong. And I just said, so I, I, what do I do? I neutrally lay out the facts and then I offer my conclusion and then I invite them to throw away my conclusion. Right? Maybe I misread or misheard or got misinformation. I hope I'm wrong. But if I'm not, you're done. Right? No, but, (laughs) right? That's what you're doing. You're restating and inviting a critique of your statement. Because what will end up happening is they might say, Yeah, that's it. And you say, Okay, now what did you just do? You move the needle on trust that much further. You're not trying to warp and straw man their arguments, you're trying to understand their arguments clearly. You know who did this the best, St. Thomas Aquinas? Before he ever answered someone in the, in the what is it called, Disputates Questiones, uh, the way the medieval university was set up, once you were a bachelor level, you would, they would get the whole, all the theology students and teachers, and if you wanted to go to that master's level, you had to stand there, and people would, you would present a teaching and then people would fire their objections at you publicly. And you had to respond to them systematically and logically up there in front of everyone. And the magister, the teachers, the masters, would sit off to the side and then they would walk up and correct their students or do whatever. But Thomas Aquinas loved the disputed questions. He loved them and he was amazing at them. We have uh, all sorts of collections of people writing down these disputes. But it's so fascinating because what he learned in the Disputates was to restate as simply, concisely, but as strongly his opponent's argument first. So that when he answered their objection, there could be no room for doubt. This man takes me seriously, and this man just shut me down, right? Because here's the deal, right? So what you're saying is you believe in a magical fairy princess god who lives in the sky. Right, like, come on, like, no, I'm not. That, that's not at all what I'm saying when I talk about the blessed Trinity. Right, you, you, when someone says stuff like that, you realize they're not taking anything seriously. So, what you want to do is never give that impression, and by restating their position and possibly even amplifying it even stronger, you've made their case for them, and they that that check or that tick mark of trust moves that much further. Now, if you really want to nerd out, just go get online, type in Summa Theologica, and just read St. Thomas's great work on the summary of theology, and the whole thing is arranged according to questions, and each individual question is arranged according to articles, and each article starts with uh, one question, three or four objections, his statement, his explanation, and then his response to the objections, and that's the whole book. That's how much he loved the disputed questions, right? The man, that's how much he loved it. His great work, the Summa Summa Theologica, uh, is all based on these disputed questions. Share your feelings. This is the part, listen, I am a dramatic man. I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I am very much a dramatic man. Sometimes though, feeling language really ticks me off. It's not, I don't like talking about feelings. I don't, I'm an emotional guy, or I say passionate, right? I'm passionate, right? But I hate, how does that make you feel? Right. There's nothing that sounds to my nerd brain more annoying than that, but sometimes that's what they need to hear, and you, you can take it or leave it. Before you launch into, well, actually, you, know, you, you ever meet those people on the internet who are well-actually people, okay? If you start out by saying, I feel, sometimes that de-escalates the whole thing. You know, I really feel dot, 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 right? Doing so makes it impossible for you to come across as preaching or moralizing. That's why we do it. Right? Well, I just feel, what you're trying to say is, well, for me, I feel like, and in some circumstances, you kind of need to lead with that just to de-escalate, right? Because you don't want them to yell because then it's all over. No one wins, right? But the idea, sometimes you use this, this language because that's what they need to hear. But for me, it's very, it's very hard for me to say, I feel. I actually hate using that, but sometimes it works. Is anyone else like that? Is anyone else like you hate that? Like I feel, I, a couple of you. Okay, good. Uh, don't be afraid to pe- press pause. Uh, if you find the dialogue is grinding, to a halt. Don't be afraid to say, "Well, I'm not really sure we're getting anywhere," <laughs> but I do love discussing this with you. Why don't we take a break and go get a beer? You notice most of my conversations end that way. Um, don't be afraid to press pause because you are not the savior. Jesus is the Savior. This isn't the one argument that's gonna totally convert them and now they're gonna be speaking in tongues. Like, you're not the Savior. You're really not. It's okay that this argument is gonna end with you being, you calling a timeout and just moonwalking out of the room. That's okay. Don't feel, this is the guilt that we carry. The burdens that we carry are our own. We will never not carry the burdens of those we love. But the idea that if I failed to convert them in this conversation, then I failed, period, end of sentence, is a lie from the evil one to get you to over go overboard, to get you to put all the pressure on yourself so that ultimately what'll happen is you won't say anything. When you feel the tremendous pressure and you feel like you're ill-equipped for that kind of thing, then what happens is you shut down most of the time, or you yell, which is what I do most of the time, okay? So you don't want to do that. So just push, pause, and walk away. I've actually cultivated that with one particular family member, is the moment I feel like the eye roll is about to come on, I was like, nah, anywho, And then I go get a beer. So, uh, misconceptions, we wanna clarify them. Here's a handful of misconceptions that Brandon Vaught says he hears uh, all the time. Being Christian is just about being a good person. I don't need to go to mass for that. Catholics are responsible for so much violence and hate. The Catholic Church is so anti-science. Catholics hate gay people and deny their humanity. The Church thinks everyone who isn't Catholic is going to hell. Uh, The church condemns anyone who gets divorced. Catholics worship Mary and the saints. Catholicism is all about guilt and man-made rules. Catholics don't focus enough on Jesus or the Bible. See, there's a hard part of, about going through this that just makes me want to launch into Catholic versus Protestant apologetics with this stuff. God, oh, I love that. Would you guys ever want to come to an apologetics class if we were to offer that? Would you do that? Okay. Stay calm and find the positive intention. Understand criticism against the church and then to calmly reframe each issue by posing the church's teaching in a positive, winsome way. So the story that he sets up is Pope Benedict was about to land in the UK. So this group called Catholic Voices there was all this criticism about the Pope and the sexual abuse scandal, blah, blah, blah. So what this group did was they just formed a media team and they went around and they said, here's our goal. We're going to listen to every critique and objection. We're going to absorb them. And then we're going to give nice, good, reasonable responses. And we're going to do it in a winsome way. And they made a promise to never lose their cool. Right to never get angry, so they went on dozens and dozens of debates, television shows, you know, interview shows in preparing the way for uh, Pope Benedict, and it turned the tide, of turned the tide of the temperature that the people felt for Pope Benedict coming. It said that they had this massive turnaround in the UK. Not that everyone all of a sudden converted to Catholicism, but it earned a place for Pope Benedict to be welcomed into that country. Whereas beforehand, uh, you have people like Richard Dawkins, who I referenced earlier, saying that the moment he lands, the police should arrest him for crimes against humanity. So, um, just craziness. And they talked that down. So they, so this was their kind of approach. So if your child is critical of the church, don't immediately jump to the defensive. Focus instead on the value to which the criticism appeals. For example, if your child angrily references the sexual abuse crisis, you can acknowledge to them that as a parent, you too are outraged and disheartened by abuse. You can affirm that abuse is always and everywhere evil because it's an assault on human dignity, which your child should agree with. When you identify this shared value, you can diffuse the tension of the conversation and begin to make real headway. So they give you some examples. Here are some positive intentions. When someone disagrees with the church's teaching on contraception or abortion, they often appeal to freedom or autonomy. Yeah, those are good things. Freedom, autonomy, yes. Bodily integrity, wholeness, right? Those are good things. Start with those things that we share Proponents of same-sex marriage typically appeal to love and equality. I love love, support gay marriage. It's the most popular bumper sticker. Yes, okay, what does love mean? This is where you get to go through all those beautiful questions. What does love mean? What does marriage mean? How would you define marriage? Is it the domestic partnership for the emotional support of two people? Or is it for the procreation education of children? Because if it's one, not the other, right? If it's one and not the other, If it's the first one, then any domestic arrangement goes. But if it's the second one, then there's only one domestic arrangement that can go. If your child insinuates that he prefers science to faith, he's appealing to the value of open and honest truth-seeking. You have someone like that, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Why do you believe in science? Because it gets at truth, it gets at reality. That's awesome. So you care about truth, you care about facts, you care about reality. You're objective, right? That's something that you can agree with completely. That's good, that is good. Uh, The last three things, then we're going to wrap up, hopefully, in the next five minutes. He said lying. All righty. We're going to take a brief commercial break to hear from the fine folks at Ascension Press. Am I saved? How do I develop a better prayer life? How do I trust in God? The Curious Catholic is a new series of bite-sized books from Ascension that answer these questions and more. The Curious Catholic features small books from various authors that provide busy Catholics ways to go deeper into spiritual questions. The first three titles in the series are from Father Mike Schmitz, host of the Bible in a Year podcast. Father Mike's books explore the topics of salvation, prayer, and trusting in God. To learn more about the Curious Catholic series, go to ascensionpress.com/curiouscatholic. That's ascensionpress.com/slash curious Catholic. Okay, look for seeds of the word. The early church fathers described this approach as identifying semina verbi, semina verbi, right? The seeds of the word. Now, they reference that if you look at the world religions, you look at the philosophies of the world, you can see some elements of it that are God inspired, Christ centered. Focus on those and build upon them, right? St. Paul in Acts chapter 17 goes to the Areopagus. And as he's walking to the Oropagus in Athens, he sees all of these altars. And there's an altar there to the unknown God. And he goes up and he does his big speech. And he says, Athenians, I see that you are very religious. For here you have an altar even to the unknown God. Like just in case you got all your eyes dotted and T's crossed. And then he said, well, let me tell you about this God. Right now the another amazing thing that he does is he quotes two of their poets to them. He has no problem grabbing from the culture and using it in order to better explain, right to be a reference point so that they can then begin to understand who this Jesus is. Uh, Pope Benedict in his wonderful book Introduction to Christianity points out that when G, when, the, when the gospel began to enter into the Roman Empire, her priests and bishops and theologians, they didn't go up to the pagan priests in order to dialogue. They went to the philosophers. In fact, they completely ignored the pagan priests and they went to the philosophers. And there, that's why you have some of the, so many of the church fathers who were Ciceronians, who were uh, Stoics, who were um, Platonists, who were Neoplatonists, who have all these things, because they were in constant dialogue with the philosophy of the day. And there they thought, in reason, we can dialogue. Introduce shoe pebble questions. I think this is a Brandon Vaught original, and I love this idea. You ever get a pebble in your shoe? Right, it's annoying, but not that annoying that you, like, stop and shake out your sock or your shoe or whatever. But if it's in there for long enough, you'll literally have a blister, right? It's just rubbing just a little bit, just a little irritation, not that big a deal. It's not like you're bleeding profusely. Uh, So he said, they will rub, poke, and work. So use questions that do that, that are like a shoe pebble for the mind, right? Oh, really, what do you think is... The best, oh, you think belief in God is irrational. Well, have you, of all the arguments you've heard for God's existence, which one do you think is the best? And why doesn't that work? These questions will rub, poke, and work on his mind, bugging him until he resolves the question. Each shoe pebble question is meant to provoke your child to re-examine an assumption. You're not manipulating. Well, why would you say that, right? Like, you're, you're trying to give a shoe pebble question. You're not trying to be like, uh, You're basically letting his or her mind turn over and over after the conversation. Let it turn over this one thought like, huh, that he has about God or the church. So what's the strongest argument for God is and what's wrong with it? What do you think is the best reason to be Catholic and why don't you agree with it? Right, so you're getting them to steal man their own arguments. Okay, well, what is the best reason why someone should be Catholic? And why does that reason not enough for you? What do you think? about? Well, it's all stupid. Okay, well, then you haven't thought about it because a billion people are Catholic. People literally died to become Catholic. Why do you think they did that? Do you think it's just because some fairy tale? Well, they already believed in fairy tales in the ancient Roman Empire, if you want to call them that. They already had myths. Why would they leave their myths? Why did many of them die? What do you think they saw in Christianity? Uh, I don't know, community, easy money. Okay, these are people who were rich, Roman aristocrats, who by professing Christ, were killed the next day. Why would they do that? Like, honestly, why would someone do that, and why do you think that doesn't work? How do we know which books belong? Okay, so this is a Catholic-Protestant thing, right? So if one of your kids, any of your kids in this room left for a Protestant, non-denominational thing? Okay, a couple of you. How do we know which books belong in the Bible and which don't? How can we be sure? This is the one, it's the go-to when you're arguing with with Protestant Christians who deny the uh, church's authority and the apostles and their successors. So, well, I have scripture alone as my sole authority. Okay, which books belong in scripture? Is the table of contents inspired by God? No. Martin Luther wanted to take out five books of the New Testament, Hebrews, James, Revelation, and some other ones that I can't remember. Why? What what was his criteria of keeping them in? I'll tell you why. Because all the Christians that were following him said you better keep those in. That's it, right? He believed they didn't preach Jesus, meaning didn't affirm his doctrine of sola scriptura and penal substitutionary atonement. But within that, right, where do book, these books come from? There are 73 books in a Catholic Bible, 66 books in a non-Catholic Protestant Bible. Where do we decide which books belong and which books don't? How do you know you didn't just get rid of inspired books? because the book of Revelation says if anyone adds to the words contained in this book or takes away from them, I will add to them the plagues found therein. It's a pretty big deal. So how do you know that you know that you know? Okay, so one day I'm on a plane, I'm flying back from Fort Lauderdale, Is a tangent, I'm flying back from Fort Lauderdale and I'm sitting next to a gentleman who all he has with him is the King James Version of the Bible and I'm reading a book called, uh, it was a booklet by Sherry Woodell. I can't remember the name. Uh, Forming Intentional Disciples, something like that. It wasn't that book, but it was a book that was written. Anywho, so uh, see, so I'm reading this, and the woman in the middle is a very petite, very petite woman. And she has a, she's a baby boomer, no offense, but her bags underneath her carry-on is insane. There's so much stuff under there. I don't know how she fit it under there, but you all do it. Shame on you. You all do it. So she has all of her bags under there, and I'm sitting on the aisle, and this guy's sitting up against the window, and she gets up to go to the bathroom, and he looks over, and he says, so, uh, are, you a semin- are you in seminary? And I said, what? And he said, are you in seminary? And he said, oh, no. He goes, well, I see your book says Making Disciples of Jesus Christ. That's interesting, what what are you? So now, to answer that question, I have two options when I'm on an airplane. I say, oh, I teach, right? I can say that if I want to go back to listening to music and stuff. But if I say, I'm the director of evangelization at St. Anthony of Roman Catholic Parish in the Woodlands, Texas, that opens up a can of worms. I literally had one woman go, oh. And she just, (laughs) and she did this for a whole flight. She put her shoulder up in the air and turned, I'm like, okay. It happens to me all the time. And this is why I tell people, I remind people like yourselves who aren't, who aren't employed by the church, I remind you all the time, you actually have better access to people to evangelize than I do because once people find out I work for the church, they dismiss me as the church guy, right? So I'm on this plane and this guy, and now I know he has a King James Version of the Bible and I know what that means. I know what that entails. This is gonna be an interesting flight. So he says, so he looks over and I tell him I'm Catholic, I'm at this church. He goes, oh, St. Anthony's, my kids go to the school. I said, oh, that's nice. And he goes, but we go to a Oneness Pentecostal church down in Victoria, Texas. I'm like, that is a drive. And they don't believe in the Trinity. So I'm going through all this stuff, isn't that weird? Yeah, remember when I said Pentecostals ain't all Christian? So he sits there and he says, you know, I was right, and he's an Indian guy, and he goes, you know, I, and I, you know, I'm not doing oppression, and he goes, you know, when I was growing up in India, and he immediately goes into his testimony, I went to Holy Infant Catholic Church and I believe that statue of baby Jesus, if I didn't give him my money as a little kid and put it in the nativity scene that he was gonna curse me and all this stuff, and yeah, that, that was my face. Control your facial expression. Shelly's rolling her eyes. And in my head, I'm thinking, the wrath of baby Jesus. <laughs> Eight pound, six ounce, baby Jesus coming out. But this guy, genuine, and I was like, well, he does from, come from an, uh, a pagan culture where they have millions of gods and tons of idols and all this stuff. I was like, maybe he thought that. And he's like, I would give my money. But then I met someone when I was a teenager who taught me the gospel and showed me that I could actually have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then he goes in and now I'm saved and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, okay. And he goes, <laughs> and then he said, if my pastor next Sunday were to say to me, or to say, stand up at our congregation and say, hold up the Bible and say, I'm going to contradict what's in this book today. I think it's wrong. And I'm going to tell you why. He said, I would stand up with my family. And I said, we are leaving because the Bible, not you is our sole authority. And I would take my family and I would leave. What do you think about that? I said, well, if Father Tom ever got up and said, hey, I'm going to read today's gospel, but just so you know, my homily is going to completely contradict it because I don't believe anything. I said, I would definitely, like, if he ever went that out of character, I would get up and leave too. Absolutely. He goes, well, good, good. I said, but here's the deal. Every week, your pastor is going to get up at that pulpit and he's going to tell you with full conviction and authority that he can muster what he thinks that Bible is telling him. I said, I, this is the most, like, controversial thing I'll ever say to you. said I don't think you believe in scripture as your sole authority he looked at me he goes what are you talking about of course it is I said no I think you think your interpretation of scripture is your sole authority and that's a huge difference because how do you know that you know that you know so what do you mean I said so your pastor let's say you disagree with your pastor over an interpretation how do you resolve it well we would come together and we would pray and we would read the passage I said okay 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 Let's say you've prayed, you fasted, you're both godly men, God-fearing men, I'm giving you that. You're both smart, you're studious, you're on your A game, you still can't resolve it. What do you do? how do you know that your interpretation is correct? What do you do next? He goes, well, we pray, and if we can't come to a resolution, then I guess I leave his church. And I said, who are you? This guy went for years to seminary. He studied Greek and Latin and Hebrew. He knows the original languages. He studied under scholars. And he goes, well, yeah, I guess you're true. I guess, I would, I go, no, you're not. Have you ever been to grad school? That's all one trendy theory after the next. And in biblical studies, it's the worst. Some German publishes something. All of a sudden, everyone contradicts everyone else. It's crazy. And he goes, well, then maybe what, I would just have to be with my own convictions. And I was like, but you don't know the languages. You don't know the history. Who are you to trust you? And he's like, well, what would you do? And I said, see, this is what I believe that's different. I believe Jesus didn't give us the Bible. Jesus gave us the church. And scripture came from and for the church. They're not in opposition, Bible or church, but the church, namely the New Testament, right, the apostles, assembled sacred scripture, and then the bishops codified or canonized, put together the canon of scripture in a council that we believe is infallible because of what Christ guaranteed that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So I don't have this circular reason, well, the Bible's true, why? Because the Bible says so. We believe that the Bible speaks to us about Jesus Christ who historically started the Catholic Church and invested in them the authority to bind and to loose, to rule, to make judgments that God himself would ratify. What you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I was like, that's the difference. So I can take a passage and disagree with the Catholic Church, but Jesus gave us the church so that I could trust that the gospel 2,000 years ago is the same gospel that we hear 2,000 years later. I said, that's the whole point of Galatians chapter 1. If you hear another gospel, I said, go to any church. I said, if you were to believe that and go start your own church, you would be teaching a different gospel than your pastor. So which one's the true gospel? Am I supposed to follow the courage of your convictions? The line of your argumentations? What if you're both wrong? And all I'm left with is two bad options. And then he was really pissed off after that, and we had a... (laughs) Yeah, it was so funny because we were whispering and then the lady came. Because I don't, you know, how annoying would it be if people are arguing on a plane? So I'm like, no, no, no. You see, in the third, in the fourth century, right? And then the lady comes back and she comes back from the bathroom like 20 minutes later and she goes, do you want to sit in my seat? (laughs) And I look at her and I go, lady, you want to put the fat guy in the middle? And she goes, you're just having such a great conversation. So then I reach at her and I pull, I, I unwedge all the stuff she put under the seat and I put it under and sure. And then we whisper yell for an hour and a half. And then we land and he gets lost and I have to show him how to get, to the, how to get home. It was funny, it was a funny story. It was a funny story. At one point, he got really mad, and he said, I've never once told you to come to my church, yet yeah, you tell me I have to come to your church. I go, you don't have to go to St. Anthony's. But you, yes, you, you should go to the Catholic. Jesus Christ did not start churches. He started the church. That's the difference. Either he did or he didn't. That's up for you to figure out. But if he did, that's up to you to repent and convert. Right? So that was fun. Win people with joy. <laughs> Smile often. No, <laughs> no, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the only, no, the only emotion is joy. The only emotion you can, (laughs) smile often, emphasize the church is yes, share joyful stories of faith and let your passion shine, right? Are you passionate for our Lord are you passionate for his church? Those of you who are passionate, it seeps out of you. You can't keep it in and don't, right? Let the joy of the Lord just kind of come out of you. And if you struggle with the joy of the Lord, pray for it. Let that be an intention that you have in your heart every day. Lord, just increase my joy in you, right? Sad saints are bad saints. So, Let's conclude at this point in the game plan. You've prayed and fasted for your child, or friend, or neighbor, and niece and nephew, mom or dad. You've equipped yourself, planted seeds, opened good conversations. Now it's time to lead from curiosity to openness to a more intentional phase of exploration. That happens when we reconnect them with the local parish and others who can help. Right? That's where you start the conspiracy of grace. Broaden your net. Start bringing more people in to pray, to intercede, to fast. And then let's rely on one another to share the good news. Amen? Amen. Who's the Savior? Jesus. Is it you? Nope. No. All right. And Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus Christ, you know how much we fumble and fail, but you still are God, Lord of heaven and earth. So we humbly come before you with all of our trepidations, doubts, fears, worries, with these seemingly unconquerable walls, these fortresses and strongholds that are too big for our armies but God just like at Jericho you showed us in that great story that the thickest walls of the enemy come tumbling down when it's led with worship Jesus I trust in you Jesus I trust in you Jesus I trust in you and in your matchless name we pray amen father son holy spirit amen